I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is S. Alfonso Williams, an independent researcher based in Cleveland, Ohio. For more, please check out his website, theoryandanalysis.wordpress.com, and follow him on social media. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org. Um, we should talk about your book that will be coming out very soon. No, it's your so podcast. I always want to share the platform so we can we can do a little a little doubly a little double thing going on. So please inaugurate us with your book, your forthcoming book that will be will be coming out because I saw the cover. You know, it features your cut up work. It's awesome. You know, I definitely want to know more about Scansion because you are definitely a Scansion master, cut up master. Um, so I definitely want to hear you know, just a little bit, just a tiny, teeny little bit of what your book is about before it actually comes out. Okay, but only a little bit because it's your power. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Um, it was cool. exciting yesterday to see on the Rutledge website that the, the book is available for pre-order. It's called Scansion and Psychoanalysis and Art, The Cut and Creation. Um, and basically, I wrote it in a way so that if you like the artist but don't know a lot about psychoanalysis, it's readable. And if you know about psychoanalysis but don't know about these artists, then hopefully you'll find them interesting. So I tried to kind of write it in a way that no matter which kind of direction you're coming from or why you find it interesting, you'll be able to get something out of it besides just like just the art or just the psychoanalysis. Um, and I basically just looked at the concept of scansion, Lacan's concept of scansion, um, which is the cut or like when he, he developed it to end session early, usually, but end session whenever the unconscious uh, makes a slip or something really poignant slips out or, you know, something that the analyst wants to mark, um, which usually would be a shorter session, but could be a longer session. Um, 
and then I realized that a lot of the artists I like kind of do this in their work where they're like using the cut either quite literally where they're like cutting with scissors or film editing or even cutting their body like body modification um, or just disrupting narratives whether it's like gender narratives and norms or like music that's disruptive instead of like harmonious um, and stuff like that and then when I started thinking about it I realized like where is this book going to start? And I started it around when Freud's time and a little before when photography started um, because photography is like the first time that people could just like kind of cut out this little slice of life and like hold it in their hands and reflect on it. And I feel like being able to do that um, started giving us a new perspective, kind of stepping outside of ourselves a little bit instead of being just caught up in the flow of life. We could like take snippets out of life and like step back from them and look at them. And then I thought about how inundated Freud must have been um, during his time because uh, photography was like becoming more and more commonplace and uh, everybody was showing everyone pictures of like ruins and archaeology and you know, different places in the world and different people in the world and, and all of this information could start being shared much more readily than it had been able to be before and different artworks and that sort of thing because of photography. And then I found this book called Mirrors of Memory where that someone named Mary Bergstein actually wrote just about that exact issue and about how oh, wow. Freud was inundated with, um, with photography and how that must have impacted his perspective. So then I thought, okay, so there's something to this. Someone else has thought about this too. So that's kind of where it started. And I just wrote about artists, all these different artists that I like, um, all the way up until current times. Oh, wow. That is awesome. That is awesome. I can't wait to, to get a copy of that and, and read it and go through it. I feel so bad, man. Um, since, 20, since 2014, I've not directly been involved in in the arts directly, you know, in terms of like making art myself. And after I finished my uh, my undergrad uh, in art history and sociology uh, in 2008, uh, I was a little burnt out on art history um, because right after that, I was basically in the mindset of, okay, I've graduated, I have a shit ton of debt that I need to try and pay off. So, like, from that point on, I was focused on trying to. Uh, figure out how to make that zero, which is not zero. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so in between like 2008 and 2014, I mean, I was, I was doing art and I was reading about art. But I think at some point, um, I think I burned myself out a little bit, not because I was over overproducing, but because I think I've, I somehow got to the point where I didn't feel like I had anything to say. Um, so in 2014, that was the, the transitional point where I was like, okay, I'm going to leave the arts alone, art, music, um, sort of that whole thing. And I'm going to make a transition into uh, reading. I wanted to read more. Um, so I started digging into psychoanalysis and philosophy um, and all that good stuff. But then also, I also did pick up an interest in film. Um, I don't know how. I think it, I think they just sort of, it was probably mostly because I was uh, going to um, 
half-price books. I don't know if they have a half-price books in Florida where you're from. I forget their reach. But half-price books is a is a chain. Um, I know there's a couple in Ohio, uh, here in the Midwest, I think maybe even going east towards New York and whatnot. Um, but, but they're awesome. So there's one out east uh, in, uh, in, in this place called Golden Gate Plaza, basically. And um, they know who I am because I am a, <laughs> a frequent regular. Um, but man, I would just go there and just sort of call the section like monthly, sometimes multiple times during the month. And I would just see what they had uh, browsing, uh, just as a sort of like a, a side note, because I, you know, I work in the library, I do place a high value on browsing um, because it's, you know, it's a good way to see things with new eyes, even if what's there hasn't really changed. So which has happened, I've gone there and, you know, most of the stuff that's there was there last time. Um, but there may be just, you know, one thing um, that catches your eye, and then you pick it up, and then you read it back, or maybe you go to the table of contents, and you see something that, that catches your eye, and you're like, okay, I'm going to make this, the decision to buy this. You know, then you go to the counter and you check out. Um, so I would, you know, do this all the time. Um, so I would stop at the philosophy section first, browse through, um, go around the corner to the next section, which would be film. I would go through, see if there's anything that caught my eye. Um, then after that, around the other corner to uh, the psychology section, you know, see what was going on in there, see what Freud books they had, uh, and all the, the different textbooks and all that stuff. Then, then I'm around the corner again, see what's going on in the fiction section, browse through all that. Then I would jump over to the social sciences section, see what's going on there, flip back around, look at the literature section, um, see what they had there. Sometimes I would find some some random stuff like some uh, some Bach tin. Um, I found a volume one of. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, The Family Idiot five-volume series. So that's like his, that's his magnum opus, his psychoanalytic magnum opus um, on Gustave Flaubert. Um, so he performs his take um, across Flaubert's, basically his life, just sort of psychoanalyzing him, not from the, the typical way, um, the typical way psychoanalysis views, uh, views itself. Yeah, Sartre was sort of, he was on board with psychoanalysis, but he definitely didn't see it the same way as a lot of others. So at the end of um, being in nothingness, there's a there's a short, a short chapter called Existential Psychoanalysis. And there he sort of goes into um, his views on what he sees as psychoanalysis. Um, one of his big things was he didn't he didn't like the idea necessarily of you know conscious that the that there was a part of the individual that didn't have control um, and could therefore sort of escape responsibility. So because that's basically what being in nothingness is all about. It's about the subject dealing with um, certain contradictions 
but at the end of those contradictions, um, the subject is always left um, with choice within this environment of freedom. Um, so um, I don't have no idea how I got there. But yeah, so I found the volume one there. I didn't buy it at the time, um, but I saw it there. Um, and then after after rounding that section, then towards the counter, there would be all the DVDs and the, the films and all that stuff. Um, but half price books, out of all the places that I could physically buy um, DVDs and, and Blu-rays in the city, they had a dedicated um, international film section. So this is what I would keep coming back to more and more often because there would be the films like the Lars von Trier films, um, you know, all the Criterion uh, collection films would be there. Um, you know, uh, just all of that good stuff. And so I would just keep coming back, seeing what they had, seeing what they had. And, and uh, yeah, I think that's probably mostly how I started really getting into film. And then once I really started like getting into, into uh, my psychoanalysis books, I picked up the connection to film. Um, and so I started buying more and more films to try and understand, you know, what it is that they were talking about. So, um, yeah, 20, 20, 2014 was definitely that crossover year where both film and books became um, definitely very important. So, I've only started getting into film recently, and that's because Carl makes films. But like before that, I was never really into film when I was younger. And then when my office in Manhattan was really close to Film Forum, which showed a lot of like old films, screamed a lot of older films. So mm. I always wanted to like go over there after work or like in between patients or something like that. But whenever I thought of it or had the time, it was never like it would never like line up well with my schedule. So I didn't go as often as I wanted. But that, that's kind of the curse of New York is like there's so much to do but you're working so much to be able to pay to live there that you don't really get to do anything <laughs> i feel like but i've been loving mary's classes the, the freud museum film classes and i've started watching the lars von triers to prepare for the next one um which i've seen a bunch of them already but i'm re-watching them anyway but i really love the joker one especially because i love going back to that um uh, the first The Man Who Laughed film and seeing this film from like the 1920s and how like this character evolved over time. I really like taking a character and seeing how what certain characters have been used in different ways over time. It's really interesting. Yeah, man. Mary really like knocked it off the park. So I attended that one and I attended the, the David Lynch one. So the Lars, I get paid this Friday. So once I get paid, then I will, I'll drop the money so I can, so I can attend. Um, but yeah, she really did a fantastic job uh, analyzing the films that she that she brought into the session. Um, yeah, the Joker, the Joker. So the man that left, I still haven't, I still haven't rewatched it, but it's on my list of things to do. Um, even when you watch and you see like the clips of I forget the main the main character's name who plays who plays that character. Yeah, it's like Gwyn Gwynolyn or something. Yeah. I mean, even with, in the black and white, just the image of what they decided to do with the makeup and sort of the exaggeration um, of the mouth to really make that um, pop on the screen. So um, I was browsing through one of, my, uh, one of my film books and they talk about 
how when black and white was sort of making the transition into color, how there were some people who were sort of hesitant um, because either because they didn't take color seriously or um, or they felt that it was actually easier to deal with because um, with black and white, I guess there we have to lay you have to be more careful about how you um, how you lay things in the aesthetic frame. Um, so the way shadows fall, um, even even though you're seeing things in color, um, whereas like as the art director, um, you still have to know how those tones are going to translate once um, they're viewed through the camera. So a certain shade of pink um, against a, a dark shade of blue in color, they're obviously different, and you can obviously tell the tone. But once that goes to the black and white, um, it's going to translate differently and give you a, a certain type of uh, feeling, tone, mood, and all that stuff. Um, <clears throat> so I think, I mean, there's a certain nostalgia about black and white films. Um, and there's a certain emphasis that we now place on color and sort of like a retro a retro novelty that we sort of project back onto black and white films. Uh, but I mean, it's black and white film is definitely not as simplistic as some may seem uh, on the surface because to, like I said, there's a lot that you have to take into consideration because certain things like color are stripped out. So you have to compensate and monitor for those things that don't necessarily uh, appear or maybe over appear um, because uh, because they're being uh, emphasized a little bit more. So that one, yeah. the man who laughed, is on YouTube. Okay, yeah, okay. I'm I'm going to find it. I'm going to mark it in my favorites, and I'm I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it. It's but, really um, good. Oh my god! There's so much. There's so much good stuff out there. Sometimes. I know, and like Derek Hook's po- new show, new podcast or whatever on YouTube. Man. I want to watch all of them. He's made like so many, and he's just made them during quarantine the past couple of weeks. But they're only couple. like 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes each, so. Yeah, I've watched a couple so far. Um, man, that was cool. So even here, like, my, so of course, my first time meeting him was at the X-ray conference. Um and he's like, he was just a very, you know, bouncy and gregarious guy and, you know, has a hilarious sense of humor. Um, so seeing him now, you know, on the YouTube channel um, doing his lectures uh, is a, is like a super treat because, uh, yeah, he has a, a very great way of explaining things and, uh, you know, just a, a fantastic uh, professor um, across the board. So, so that's cool. That was very cool. Um, but yeah, man, uh, Joker, 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 Joker. Um, I'm definitely, I'm definitely a fan of the Christopher, Christopher Nolan, um, Batman, uh, The Dark Knight. I really, really like that film. So my paper was basically about ethics about how ethics is um, it's possible, but it's not possible. It, it exists in this space where because of the way 
human beings are constructed and, and not being able to sort of um, not being able to inhabit another one's space. So I can't be you, can't be me. Like I touched on it <clears throat> the last podcast we did, um, I sort of touched on possession, uh, basically. So this is this is this is that. So the the inability to be to to stand in the place of another person, like directly at the ontological level, um, it it places a very real restriction on how much I can empathize with another person. <clears throat> so what we do instead is we intervene with various forms of media. So a medium is something that comes in the place of something or more than two other things um, to serve some particular purpose. Um, and so our usage of media as uh, entities that report news to us to give us information about places, things um, that we can't be there for ourselves, that is what um, our formal use of media um, has come to come to be, but um, but in a more sort of uh, ontological sense, uh, we use mediums all the time. So this is where like uh, Marshall McLuhan really comes in. Uh, and shout out to Andrew McLuhan. Um, he's been fantastic just over the over the, the year that I sort of gotten to, to know him and his father's work and his grandfather's work <clears throat> um, has been super, super enlightening. So for those who don't know, uh, Marshall McLuhan uh, is sort of famous for the phrase, the medium is the message. Um, but within that, that phrase that people may think is either, either simplistic or confusing is a lot of stuff. And there's been a lot of mileage that has come out of that phrase. And so for me, what that phrase highlights is paradox, paradox and contradiction. Um, so the way Marshall meant it, um, he used it in a, in a different context over time, but the, the, the conventional understanding is that um, most people, when they think about a medium, they focus on the content or what's contained within the medium uh, itself. But Marshall's emphasis was on the effects. Um, so what is what happens as a result of that medium's usage um, and uh, uh, it's what is what happens as a result of it being in the space of the environment that it inhabits. Um, but so I took that and in the term in terms of paradox, I took that as being within the medium, it has effects. And as a result of these effects, um, new media are created. And this continues, you know, ad nauseum. So there's always um, embedded layers of media and effects, um, both being the medium and the effect at the same time. 
So in terms of ethics, um, and there's, there's a whole host of problems that I have with the way that we define ethics. So one of the main problems is like the, the deontological aspect or the, the obligatory aspect or the, the duty aspect. So <clears throat> let's say, you know, you're walking with a friend down the street, somebody comes, you know, they punch them in the face and then they just walk off. So what do you do? Now your reaction is going to probably be, you know, to go after this person and, you know, try and serve justice. But um, by law, this would be typically not allowed. So you can't do this and, you know, go and cause harm to this person because, you know, uh, what do they say? Uh, uh, two wrongs don't make a right. So, so typically in that situation, you would call an authority to intervene, um, which would be the law, and then they come get this person, and then this person, you know, is judged by the third party who was the law um, according to their standards. Um, so in this case, the law is serving as a medium between you and the conflict. Um, but you are sort of caught in a, in a very sort of weird place. So on one hand, you have to play the ethical side of the, situ of the situation. The person who came and hit your friend is the, the unethical side. They are not under any type of restriction. So they're like the independent variable, you know, the scientific experiments. They can do whatever they want. Um, and they're just there to sort of do. They just do, which is what Joker does in, in The Dark Knight. That's his, his whole role in relation to Batman. He just does, and he even says that in the film. He just does. Um, but the ethical side is caught under a certain type of restriction. Um, and this restriction is the point of unethicality, which is represented by the opposition. So Joker or the person that hit your friend or whatever. The moment that is crossed for the ethical side, then they become unethical. So now you've hit this, this, this sort of contradiction. How, how can the ethical get over the unethical without crossing that line? So if this person, you know, can just keeps getting away with stuff or whoever, you know, you know what are you supposed to do as someone, you know, representing ethics? Um, to try and stop this. You know, how do you stop this? How do you stop wars and conflicts all over the all over the world where um, there is no clear good or bad? Um, so, but there's authorities intervening. But sometimes these authorities have you know cross relations and sort of all sorts of ties that complicate the situation. Um, so when so when we start talking about duty, you know, an obligation, um, at minimum, there is an obligation to respond. So um, if you don't respond, then this is also a response. So this is where like Sartre would come in and, and say, there's still a choice, even if there's not a choice, because in this context, in this environment, uh, there's still an action that you that you can perform 
even if it's not necessarily the one that you prefer. So, um, or you could even choose to not act. That's a choice too. Yeah, that is that's that's definitely a choice. And Sartre has like a, a a famous example where he talks about a soldier who he's with his mom and he wants to go fight off um, in a war. So he's he's sort of caught between: Do I fight this war and help my country, or do I stay with my mom because she doesn't want me to go and sort of you know assuage her, her her feelings about the situation and me going off potentially being killed. Um, so that's another, you know, sort of ethical uh, uh, example that Sartre gives. I believe that's in the existentialism is a humanism book. It's a, it's a short little book. It's a lecture that he gave, a uh, famous lecture. Um, so, like, that's one of my main uh, critiques of how we define ethics. Um, uh, another one is so during my conference. I think the first piece that I talked about uh, was yeah, epistemologies, paradoxes. There is no ethical relationship. So one of the one things that one thing that happens during that piece is basically I start discussing how, in the course of mediation of two two subjects sort of assessing one another, um, they. They use data and sensory information that they receive from their environment and from the other person to sort of create uh, in uh, a double or an extra. I called it in, in epic twins and you know stupid neologism, but it served its purpose. But basically, um, all of this data comes to serve the purpose of assessing what this other person is in a very abstract way. And we do this all the time. It's an everyday thing. Um, it's why we're surprised when somebody does something that we don't necessarily expect. Um, it's like, wow, I didn't know, I didn't know you were like that or you know, something similar. Um, again, that's part of the, the ontological um, factor being that we can't be other people, we can't know them completely. Um, so we're always in a, uh, in a constant state of um, not knowing um, what is going to happen in terms of their domain of you know, autonomy and agency. Um, so one of the things we do is over, over the course of time, we, uh, you know, we talk to a person, we get to know them, we sort of try and assess, suss through the data consistency through lines, um, you know, their personality traits, um, and all these things that typically don't change in the course of moving from environment to environment. Um, but this, it works, but it only works to a certain degree. So, um, um, so yeah, so we do this and it becomes sort of part of a, a longer elaborate process of um, as we come into knowledge uh, about our environment, about this other person, our knowledge of what it is is always late to the actual event. Um, and because we're always getting our enlightenment later than what actually happens, um, we 
again, end up in sort of another weird paradox where um, it's sort of we're retroactively reconfirming um, the autonomy and the agency that we both, that both of us have um, in this environment that is, uh, that is forming with us at the same time. So we're these uh, anomalous agents in this environment and we're both changing uh, at the same time. So we're both this sort of evolving development, um, which, um, which again, this, this whole, the, the whole point of this entire process is to, to mitigate consistencies. So we want to know um, as much as possible all the things that, that are going to may be the same over time so that we can at least be sure um, about something. We want to have some sort of stable foundation um, about ourselves um, and about our environment. So um, this could not have happened for me without the work of, of Marshall McCoy uh, because in his, uh, he wrote an insane number of books, but two of the books that he wrote I have right here, um, the new edition of Understanding Media um, and Laws of Media, the New Science, written by both him and Eric. So Eric is um, Andrew's Andrew's father. He passed away in 2017, I believe. Um, but yeah, uh, Marshall Marshall has been essential in sort of sussing out uh, uh, paradox and in my relation to, to ethics that I'm articulating here. Um, yeah, and and I love that. Sort of, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I love that night that you, the, the talk that you gave at the Psychology of Global Crises Conference was the same night that Andrew McLuhan gave a talk. So it was like back to back, these two great talks in a row. Yeah, it was a fun night. Yeah, definitely, man. Definitely. You know, Andrew, Andrew, uh, Andrew's more of a natural than, than, uh, than I think he sort of you know, gets incredible because, you know, we're sort of similar in that we're not, um, we don't necessarily come from an academic background. So, I mean, I just have a bachelor's degree, I'm 36. Um, and I think he does not have a bachelor's, I think. So we're sort of like in this, in this weird sort of space where we're engaging with a lot of academic-oriented um, material, but we're not formally of that formally of that environment um, but no man Andrew Andrew knows a shit ton of stuff um, and he has been absolutely essential in sort of um, elaborating details to me about um, the work Eric and um, Eric and Marshall wrote about and discussed um, and sort of just giving me different perspectives to think about um as I go on, um, sort of think about it in my own way. So, yeah, yeah I think so thinking about it in your own way is important because I think 
with academia, like even though a lot of the people we read are formally trained in academia and are professors and work in academia, I feel like more and more it's getting people to think like in a certain way, you know, everybody has to read certain thinkers, everyone in philosophy reads the same canon of philosophers. And then it was Murakami who said, if everybody read the same books, then everybody would think the same way, you know? So I think it's really important that, I love that Andrew's trying to bring his grandfather's work outside of academia and to a, a more general audience. And I love that, you know, especially nowadays with the internet, we can all educate ourselves. And I feel like at least my formal education was learning a lot of things I had to learn to work inside the medical and mental health care system, like the DSM and how the hospital system works and all the pharmaceuticals that they use to give people. And I don't use any of that stuff, you know? So I had to just like learn it to get a job to realize I don't want this job (laughs) and then get out of it. And then I could start reading what I wanted to read. So like skip that part and just read what you want to read and learn what you want to learn and like we can watch Derek's YouTube channel and get like a Duquesne level professor education from YouTube yeah yeah definitely definitely. and have conversations Uh with these people directly at at conferences and through email and podcasts and stuff like that oh yeah most definitely Uh I think that formal formal academic track is like (laughs) <laughs> that's in the olden days we are now entering new days yeah yeah we definitely are uh, especially now with, with COVID um, and the American new... uprising yeah yeah there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff going on here in the states um, just whole confluence of, of things you know, black lives matter um, trans lives you know, Police, police outrage. Um, Trump in the, in the in the White House. Um, people, people dying from, from COVID, and, and authorities making irresponsible decisions about you know, who is who's expendable and who's not expendable. Um, there's there's just a lot of shit going on right now that I think. I don't know, man. So, I mean, if we if we want to think about COVID, you know, as a media, um, what was the effect? We know what the what the content of COVID is. COVID is a virus. It's a virus that replicates itself um, and causes all sorts of, of health problems. But um, one of the effects, the main effect, probably of COVID, is forcing us to. Um, assess all these issues that we sort of just keep keep burying and keep pushing to the side um, just to maintain our, our daily lives. So now everything that's going on now um, perhaps wouldn't have happened had COVID not happened, had COVID not happened. But of course, you know, with, with any new medium, um, along with effects, there's always a, a price, a cost that comes, you know, with the content and the effects. So um, there's a lot of heavy prices being paid right now. Um, So uh, yeah, it's very heavy times right now. Um, Like now it seems like lynchings, lynchings are coming back and they're still being labeled 
suicides, which is which is inane. So infuriating. Um, but it's like, I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to wrap my head around this, and because I need to, I really need to go back and sort of dig into this relationship between the South and the North, and because I haven't really, really, really traveled um, a whole lot, especially like past, like once college happened back in 2002, um, I was basically, basically broke and not really traveling, but so between then and now, I haven't really gone a lot of places. But um, my grandfather and his family was from the South, so there's still some relatives down in Mississippi, um, I think maybe Atlanta, um, on my grandmother's side, uh, there's there's some relatives actually down in Florida. I think down in um, Tallahassee. Tallahassee's the north part, right? Okay, yeah, Tallahassee. Um, uh, but I haven't been down there to see them. Been down there to see them. So the only time I, I see them is when they come up here for for an event, which is just very rare. Um, but yeah, I mean this this relationship that the South has had with the North and this sort of perpetual disavowal of, of what it thinks are acceptable human relations um, and this legacy with, with slavery, um, overt slavery, and um, and how this is sort of mediated through 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 law, through policy, through symbols like statues um, and flags. Uh, you know, this is another property of, of media where the medium serves an ambiguous place because it's not, it can't, it's impossible for the medium to, to represent this entire sort of uh, mass of, of history. Um, in all in all its contexts, but at the same time, uh, contradictorily, it does become associated with little bits. Um, so, to each individual who may see that, according to what they know, their own epistemology, um, certain things will it will trigger, um, and other things they won't think about, and then another person can come. Um, and it will trigger certain things with them and not other things. So, so when we think about, uh, you know, what to do with these effigies of, of history that are standing, you know, around in our, in our parts and, you know, that are constantly in our face day to day that we don't necessarily think about, um, you know, we really have to, we really have to take the time and really assess that if we are going to be, um, if we're going to be aesthetically invested in identities and the thing and the way that we portray things, the way that we portray history, um, the way that we put certain people and, and cultures and whatnot on pedestals, we have to be aware of the effects of those contexts. You know, what what does that mean, you know, when we call a thing a thing. What what is what happens when we when we name, you know, when we speak, when we utterance make utterances through language? Because um, 
you know, we take we take speaking and language for granted, but the the act of naming, um, which I know Lacan talks about, you know, in his in his own kind of way, um, but the act of naming is extremely powerful because when you when you when you think about what happens when you cannot speak, when you can't name anything, you know, what happens to your world? It becomes it becomes overwhelming in an oppressive in a way because like if I couldn't you know name any part of what this computer is, if I couldn't you know name any of these things around me, you know, they just sort of become things, you know, and that anxiety, you know, builds up in myself um, because I don't know how to how to relate. So the the relation of language to to other phenomena and uh, the way it mediates um, our relation is uh, is extremely significant and important. So the way we the way we speak about things and the way we name and label things uh, is is important. Yeah, and like you said, how we relate to them and how they relate to one another. And with these statues, like you mentioned, I remember a couple of years ago I read this paper um, that I can dig up that this woman wrote. Um, about statues being put up in the USSR and how they were specifically put up in certain areas uh, for political reasons to make sure the people knew, like, this is the power and we're watching you. And they were meant to, like, put people in their place. And in the same paper, she talked about the Confederacy and these statues in the South and how most of them weren't put up they weren't put up like right after the war. Of course, they lost. They were put up like in the 1920s when people started getting the rights to vote and when people started being able to have businesses and jobs and that sort of thing. They were then erected to like assert the power of like, okay, you might be getting more liberties and freedoms, but we're still here. We're asserting ourselves. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's one of my sort of beefs with, uh, with the law. Or not the law necessarily as an institution. I mean, that's part of it. But with just sort of law in general, um, law again sort of being used as a media, um, it creates certain problems. So again, sort of going back to one of the points my paper was trying to emphasize is the relation of the subject to an environment. Um, you know, we say subject and then we say environment, but this is really an artificial split. Um, there really is no difference between subject and, and environment. And it's, it sounds like a common sense thing to say, um, but it really is complicated because within, within that non-division, um, paradox is introduced. So when um, we can think of just technology, the computer we're using now. Um, this computer was not possible um, at a certain point in time. Now that it is here, certain things were had to be enabled in order for it to be present. Certain things have happened over time. Um, so now the effect of the computer back on us is, you know, what we're what we're doing now, we're able to communicate from over vast uh, distances, um, just you know, at the at, uh, at a snap, uh, which is fantastic. 
Um, yeah, and the conference was an example of that too. Everybody was like in a different city or all over the world talking at the same time with like no lag. Exactly, exactly. Um, and even 10 years ago, you know, maybe that would have would have not been possible due to certain te- technological um, conveniences. But now that we are here, um, what this also means is that as we accelerate, and as we continue moving forward, um, there are going to be certain um, unconscious contingencies that we are going to sort of retroactively create that are going to happen in the future that once we make up that difference um, epistemologically, so once we come into the understanding of what we're, what we're doing in the moment actually is, um, what we put out into our environment will happen back to us. So I know that's like a weird description of uh, sort of like backwards and forwards time movement, but it's a it's a real paradox that we live in um, that we interact daily. So we do things; they have effects, distant effects that will come back to us um, in ways we don't necessarily recognize. So the technology that we're developing now. Um, We don't know 10, 20 years from now what it's going to look like. But by the time we get there, over the course of that 10, 20 years, it will have already, it will have always been acting back upon us. So that's what I mean with the the, the sort of uh, paradoxical relationship between the subject and environment. There's no separation. We artificially separate it for our own understanding, um, but they're always united. Now, the catch to this is that the the medium has a certain degree of autonomy and agency just like we do but it's it's sort of a it's tethered to our own because we as sort of as conscious um, autonomous subjects we sort of uh, we have this ability to choose and to sort of embody can like encapsulated contingency in a in a very specific kind of a way that let's say uh, a rock in itself does not. So this computer, which we can call it a, a subject in itself because it inhabits certain um, particularity in space and it does things on its own that I'm that are independent of me. So it doesn't need me to do certain things. Um, it can do certain things on its own that don't need me. Um, but if I were to, if our relationship was severed completely, it would not be able to do a number of these things. So there's a certain um, tethering that is necessary there. But at the same time, um, whether or not I am acting on this computer um, in this moment, um, or not, uh, the effect of the computer uh, is still um, going to occur. Uh, so the fact that it is here, the fact that I can use it, the fact that there are computers all over the place being used for various purposes, um, they still need me, they still need others as subjects to to sort of uh, um, facilitate 
their engagement. So basically all I'm saying is that um, we, we can both act, but the computer needs me, but nevertheless, I'm still involved in both the computer's um, autonomy agency and my own. So I'm always sort of in this picture, even if I'm not necessarily the actor um, being focused on it at the moment. Uh, and that's very, very important to consider, especially when we think about you know, a lot of these environmental casualties. I think there was a spill that just happened recently, um, either either a gas or oil spill or something. Um, and we think, you know, okay, well, it's just a spill. We'll get some boats out there and we'll try and clean up as much as possible. But again, you know, these are the animals that are going to be eating these things. And the animals are are engaged in the, in the environment that in ways that we are not. So even when they perish, you know, all of, all of their matter is going to go back into the to the earth to be reconstituted, and you know, it's going to, you know, especially with, with water, you know, all of the all of that stuff is being the way the ocean flows. You know, all of the currents and stuff is making its way elsewhere. So it's going to have effects elsewhere. So all of these spills definitely have long-term effects um, that we don't see, even. Even if we have the ability to, you know, to manufacture you know, fake meats and all this stuff, the materials and that we that we need in order to do that stuff comes from the environment. So there's no there's no escape. You know, even even the artificial still comes out of the natural. So um, so when we think about all of these environmental happenings. Um, events, you know, there's still, even if we're not there to actually, even if we're not there, the ones making it happen, um, we're still implicated in the event um, because it's going to come back to us either way. Yeah, so, we're still responsible. That reminds me of what you said in the beginning with Sartre and him not liking that people saying they're not responsible for things that are done un- unconsciously or things in their unconscious, because I think that's a big mis conception with like mental health and people having quote-unquote mental illness and this sort of thing is like these these things in the law where they say oh well they were out of their mind and they're not held responsible it's kind of gone into like popular culture as like oh well you know I can't help it I'm depressed or I can't help it I'm mentally ill I can't help I'm schizophrenic or whatever when really like there is a responsibility still you still do have a choice at some level and also instead of just writing it off as someone being ill, seeing like what systemic issues are at play with the person to be causing the stressors that are bringing out these these illnesses rather than just writing off someone as ill or someone even writing themselves off as ill. Like there's a responsibility in the person and there's also a responsibility as as people in society to be addressing these things. Yeah, yeah, that's a very, uh, it's very, uh, sort of tendentious relationship. So um, because you are an analyst um, and there was a part in the process or maybe at least in the past um, of trying to make the decision as to whether somebody or not is analyzable, um, you know, again, that's sort of a, the intervention of choice, not necessarily on your part, but will the will the subject be able to um, 
to introduce a certain minimum of choice to be able to maintain the um, the therapeutic relationship so that it can continue at least with some sort of um, uh, continuity and, and progression. Um, so for me, uh, over time, I've sort of been across all of the things that I've been reading you know, between Lacan and, and Freud and you know, Deleuze and Guattari uh, and all these, all these folks. Uh, I've sort of come to the point where I, I, I don't really find the unconscious and contingency basically are synonymous for me. Um, because whether whether we're talking about Lacan and how the unconscious is sort of in this weird space between linguistics and uh, and I know he doesn't necessarily like this word intersubjective. There's there's a weird anomalous space there where it sort of happens as an event through these signifiers, um, but not an actual place in, in the way that Freud described it. Um, but then also you know, the way Deleuze and Guattari sort of rejected Lacan's notion and tried to tried to expand it in a very simplistic way, uh, in a cybernetic framework where you have a lot of parts, independent parts, forming this sort of aut autonomous whole but there's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of reversibility. Um, and you have these processes that can be redirected and, and changed um, to subvert larger processes. It's, it's very strange. But between all of this, what, what I recognize as a, as a through line is that the autonomous is really contingency sort of bottled within a certain context. So whether whether it's whether whether or not it's through language or um, an actual object or an event uh, or a process um, or some type of measurement um, or whatever. Uh, the way contingency flows through whatever medium it happens to be using at that time to produce something uh, unexpected or something that can't be predicted or foreseen um, within a certain uh, distance basically is the unconscious. So, um, so in taking this, and, and again, I sort of, you know, Marshall McLuhan comes right back into it. You know, I, wouldn't, this wouldn't be possible without, without his work. Um, expanding this into other types of events and other uh, situations and, and phenomena, you, know, you start to see um, how the unconscious and contingency basically work together 
to uh, to reinforce the paradoxes that we reproduce as some uh, as subjects with a caught within subjectivity. So um, um, yeah, so that's what the unconscious is is for me right now. They could change in the future. Everything, everything that I think about that I'm writing about is it's always open. It's not closed. So um, that means it's always really important. Yeah, it's always subject to change. And tomorrow I might change my mind on certain on a certain thing, and and that's what it'll be. So, um, how do you think we should deal with the unethical ethically? From what you said before. Um, this picture came to mind that was going around the internet this morning in the UK of a Black Lives Matter protester carrying this alt-right anti-protester um, to medical attention. And it was such a poignant, like powerful image. And it, may, it came to mind when you were talking about that earlier with the unethical and like, how does the ethical like not cross the line because so many people were like, oh, why would you help that person? But like, you know, it was the ethical thing to do. Right. Um, that's part of the paradox. That's part of the paradox. So, um, I mean, just yesterday I was, I was thinking about how, uh, If I say that there is no ethical relation, that all of the points that I've been giving um, reinforce reinforce the idea that actually having a, a workable, either universal or particular ethics, contextual ethics, is not really possible. That our limits of subjectivity um, explicitly limit what um, what is capable in terms of empathy and um, what I can know about the unknown. If that's true, that, that there is no ethical relation, then what I'm sort of reduced to is having to chase this illusion that there is. But the catch to that is that if I choose not to chase this illusion, then my world begins to fall apart. Because if I fall into if I fall into the, the context of okay, everybody's totally free, they can do what they want, you know, that's sort of you know, one dimension one dimension of an anarchist thinking. Um, for me, that falls into a different dimension of law. So it, I think a lot of people equate total anarchy as being, as there being no law. But for me, that's actually not true. It's actually a different extremity of law because now, now that I'm free, I can do what I want. This person can do what they want. As soon as we engage, then there's automatic conflict. So we're right back where we started with um, trying to form uh, trying to discern this ethical relation. So the, what really um, stops this process is um, 
you have to you have to stop the process altogether. You have to hold the process up. So, for example, like with law, um, in order to make the law not work, you have to hold the process up. You have to you have to stop the flow of process to the point where nothing can happen. So, a good example of this is like the filibuster. Um, in the process. So there's, so there's that famous film of uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, you know, and he gives that famous, uh, that famous filibuster where he's just going on and on to trying to lay, um, to lay the legal process. That's, that's how the law becomes uh, impotent or not, not work. Um, so to come back to, um, to come back to the, the protester, uh, if, if they were not to do that, if they were to just leave them out on the street, then again, they would be caught in, in the unethical. They would transcend that boundary and, you know, totally flip exactly what they're, in a sense, what they're against. So being caught, being caught within that paradox, it always seems like it's the ethical side that always ends up carrying the cost of of the burden of what ethics is supposed to be. Um, so again, being the one on the defensive, even though that the offender is there, you know, accosting them, seeing that opportunity to to act ethically, to make a, a conscious choice to not leave this person there on the on the street to die, they have fulfilled the ethical paradigm, but yet at the same time, that encapsulated by a larger global context of um, again being accosted by the unethical um, is not being seen as human um, as a black individual. Um, you know that is still there to to be dealt with by them. So having fulfilled the act doesn't necessarily mean that that there will be some sort of virtuous end at the end of that. Um, so yeah, that's again, man, that's part of the paradox. So even though even though we're saying there's no ethics, if I don't chase it, then my whole world becomes chaos. So I have to, I have to chase it. I have to at least create the illusion that there is an ethics in order for there be to be some foundation that I can um, base my principles on um, and to, to structure my world in a cohesive way. So yeah, they definitely, no, yeah, they definitely do the right thing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's true because um, maybe there's no like universal ethics, like universal ethics that you can apply but like maybe then it's up to the you know it's up to each individual where they want where they want to have their ethics be and what you know it's up to their decision and the, and it's their responsibility to to make those choices and you know that man clearly made a really you know noble choice but that was another woman's point that commented on the photo was you know we've been taking care of 
these assholes basically <laughs> and caring yeah. for them for centuries and yeah. it hasn't changed a thing you know? yeah yeah exactly um yeah it's how to how does how does how does how does change happen when you know, this continuous cycle has has been going on for, for so long um i mean at the moment for me at least um with the extensiveness of uprisings, not just here in the U.S., but across the world also. Um, to me, I mean, I would really like to believe that we are sort of witnessing a transitional moment in, in history, sort of a parallax shift um, in perspective to where we are at least acknowledging that there are people who, who definitely do believe that this is not, that this is wrong, that black individuals, everybody on the LGBTQ spectrum, you know, First Nations, uh, Native Americans, peoples, these are all valid identities. And the fact that we are even having a debate about their subjectivity should need to be happening. Um, the fact that there are people out there voicing their opinions um, in the form of uh, protest is an important support for that. Um, and it's a very positive thing to see. So none of us know what is what, what it's going to look like. At the end of this um, at the end of this event, uh, but we are all hoping that this will at least, in terms of the structures that we use, because again, there is no structure without us as subjects, um, with this change in subjectivity, that this will also manifest uh, through the structures that we use um, and how we continually over time um, integrate everybody into into the world environment in the way that we're talking about. So we have to, we're gonna to have to back up, back up what we're saying so that what's going on right now, the event is not just an event for participation. It means that in the everyday, um, everyone is gonna to have to make an effort to maintain this environment that, that we've been talking about. So, um, but yeah, I've really been been, been pleased uh, seeing all the all the uh, uh, the events around the world, you know, from, from the UK to uh, to everywhere. That's that's good. That's very good. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with S. Alfonso Williams. For more, please visit his website, theoryandanalysis.wordpress.com and follow him at social media. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book.
rendering unconscious, psychoanalytic perspectives, politics, and poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Growing infinitely. Before she further delve into the symbolism and background, the personality, pronoun, we, which is where, and feel your breath, set themselves free. Thanks. Unity via plurality. Seen is never consciously introduced. Opposites combining. You will see the tendency. Edging the is the key. Truly transformed to shout. Gregarious form can, certain stage, to thee, provided it is animated. We are situated in this gap. This of two, the client's dead, we're slowly budding, growing infinitely. Energy, you of ways, whether you are, the pair began to attract. That pause, the mirror, a new way out of samsara, reflective of Jung's archetypes. We will discuss each of these in snakes. Wisdom is the major arcana, is the key to the sessions. Life has yours, my love. Better or for lies the lulling yet provocative. Works thank you for your collaboration, but they can also create themselves on their starring own, thus of the angels, your interpersonal relationships, messenger like a mask, your soul. Mirroring work has begun. Consciousness into a more originally delineated by love to one. Eros is the burning one. Not at all. I would say it 
via the cutting up and have you done anything good? We are able to be. I've not done anything. But the pieces to create already know this. Tomorrow, should, you don't. I can take one of those, we feel. Got into this sing-song correlatives of it. That is, ever then, named. And the clients would answer. But they are affirmations, would confirm. Yet they made no, this eclipse period, and forth would develop a new way out of samsara. Cut-ups were used.